Hello, and thank you for joining me today here on Bible Studies with Russ. As we continue looking at the canonicity of the Bible, we're going to begin today by picking up uh, where we mentioned last week, looking at, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? You know, according to Matthew 7 and verse 15, we are reminded that, that there were true prophets, and then there also were false prophets. And for this reason, it's necessary to have a divine confirmation of the true ones. Miracles were used for this purpose. Moses was given miraculous powers to prove his call was, was of God, as we see in Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9. We also know that Elijah uh, triumphed over the false prophets of Baal by supernatural act in 1 Kings chapter 18. We also know that Jesus was attested to by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. We also find that even Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, uh, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs as you do unless God is with him. John 3 and verse 2. So in brief, a miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God given through the prophet of God to the people of God. Again, a miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God given through a prophet of God to the people of God. Next, we want to consider, did the message tell the truth about God? Only the immediate contemporaries had access to the supernatural confirmation of the prophet's message. So, we have to ask the question, or therefore we think about how other believers in distant places or subsequent times had to depend on other tests for the canonicity of a book. One such test was the authenticity of a book, as we uh, have discussed in our class on apologetics, and briefly here as well. Does the book tell the truth about God and his world as, we know, as, as known from previous revelations? God cannot contradict himself, as we know from 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 17 and 18. Nor can he utter what is false, Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Thus, no book with false claims can be the word of God. No book with false claims can be the word of God. Now think about this today. Are there books out there today that have false claims? Oh, absolutely there is. They are really... Um, Almost beyond number. I think about the the various books of the Mormons, the Pearl of Great Price and uh, the Book of Mormon. Those are books that make false claims and that teach, uh, at times, to put it mildly, questionable ideas concerning morality. Any teaching about God contrary to what his people already knew to be true was to be rejected. Further, any predictions made about the world which, was, which, uh, which failed to come true indicated that a prophet's words should be rejected. As we are reminded of Moses' uh, Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18, 21-22. How should we know the word, of, uh, the word which the Lord has, has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. You shall not listen to him or be afraid about anything he may have to say. The test of authenticity was the reason a few of the canonical books, such as James and Jude, have been doubted by some. 
Some thought that Jude could, could not have been authentic because it supposedly quoted from unauthentic uh, pseudographical books as we look at Jude 9 and Jude verse 14. Martin Luther questioned the full canonicity of James because he thought the book taught salvation by works and that teaching was contrary to the doctrine of salvation by faith as what he believes. Now, if you look at Geyser and Nix in their book, they, and I'm going to, this is where, this is again why we have to remember, even when we're looking at historical books and things such as this, we have to be careful. Because even uh, Geister and Nix, I say even, I don't know what their religious affiliation is, but they say here that the scriptures clearly teach salvation by faith. Well, it is salvation by faith, but it's not salvation by faith alone. And that's really kind of what they're kind of leaning towards here. Well, that's not accurate either. And James tells us it is faith and works together. And uh, Martin Luther is on record as saying that he thought the book of James was a right, strawy epistle, which means he thought it was hollow and it had no meaning or had no substance because he taught faith alone. Where the book of James emphasizes faith and works together. And Gazer and Nix are a little, uh, we gotta be a little careful with them when they talk about faith uh, sometimes. Does the book come with the power of God? Another test for canonicity was the edifying effect of a, of a book. Does it have the power of God? The fathers believe the word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4, verse 12, and consequently ought to have a transforming force for edification, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, and evangelism, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. If a message did not, have, did not affect its stated goal, if it did not have the power to change a life, then, then God was apparently not behind this message. What we mean by that, what I mean by that, is that it does not have a soul-saving message behind it. We don't need we don't need books or simply, you know, a, a story being told or a uh, motivational speech. No books the books of the Bible should motivate us to uh to repentance, to a godlier to to a uh, more godly way of living. It should push us towards a higher standard of higher standard of righteousness. Uh, but some of those books out there today that are not in the canon, they simply do not do that. Another test was, was it accepted by the people of God? Now, this was not the only test, obviously, but did the people of God actually accept it? If it was prophetic, it was part of the canon. A prophet of God was confirmed by an act of God, a miracle, and was uh, a spokesman recognized by the people of God to whom he, had, to whom he gave his message. So the seal of canonicity was whether or not the book was accepted by the people of God. This does not mean that everybody in the community to which the prophetic message was addressed accepted as being divinely authoritative. And why is that? Well, if the writer said something they didn't like, some uh, teaching they didn't like, for instance, like marriage and divorce, we all know that's a great big popular topic to have. Well, they could say, well, I don't like what he says here. I don't believe that book should be part of the canon. That is not... The, the seal of it. Um, that is not, you know, a reason for us to not include it in a canon simply because the message cuts you to the heart. I mean, we have, we have that in congregation today. You want to tell preachers not to preach the whole truth of the gospel, but we know that is not accurate either. Um, if it was initially rejected by some in the community, uh, See, I lost my place here. However, true believers in the community acknowledge the prophetic nature of the message and, 
as did other contemporary believers uh, familiar with the prophet. This acceptance by the people of God occurred in two stages, initial acceptance and subsequent recognition. Now, the initial acceptance of a book by the people to whom it was addressed is crucial. Paul said to uh, the Thessalonians, we, we also constantly thank God that, we, that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. First Thessalonians 2 verse 13. I'm not sure what translation they actually use in this book, but that idea is correct, even if it is maybe paraphrased some here. For, what, for whatever subsequent debate there may have been about a book's place in the canon, the people in the best position to know its prophetic uh, cre- uh, credentials were those who knew the prophet who wrote it. Despite all later debate about the canonicity of some books, the, def- the definitive evidence is that is that which attests to the original acceptance of the contemporary believers. Of course, some books were comprised of sections written over long periods of time, like Psalms, by several authors. But the individual parts of these books were recognized by their contemporaries to come from spokesmen of God. <clears throat> now, up until this point, we have looked at topics truly really related to how we got the Bible, that is, the transmission of the Bible, the authority of its writers, and things of that nature. I want to move into now looking at, more specifically, the canon of the Old Testament. And we'll be looking at some material here uh, by Neil Lightfoot. Good evidence exists in the New Testament, in the New Testament which shows that by the, time the, the, uh, by the time of Jesus, the canon of the Old Covenant had been fixed. It cannot be questioned that Jesus and his apostles, time after time, quote, from, the, from a distinctive body of, or authoritative writings. They designate them as, quote, the Scripture, John 7, verse 38, Acts 8:32, among others, and also reference them as the, as the Scriptures, and again as the Holy Scriptures, and a fourth time as the Sacred Writings, and other uh, references to them as well. Other terms used to reference them, I should say. They often introduce their quotations with, It is written. That is, it stands firmly written and is indisputably true. Such references are not uh, are not studiously re- uh, re- registered, but simply reflect their customary manner of speaking. If some writings were scripture, others were not. If some writings were canonical, others were non-canonical. Jesus himself gives us some clear indications about the, the extent of the Old Testament canon. When applying the scriptures and their fulfillment to himself, he speaks of the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms, Luke twenty four forty four. This threefold division is undoubtedly, undoubtedly equivalent to the three divisions of the Hebrew scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And on other occasions, Jesus not only alludes to this threefold arrangement, but points to the books con- contained in this arrangement. He once spoke of the time from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Luke eleven fifty one, Matthew twenty three thirty five. Thus, referring to the martyrs of the Old Testament, the first martyr of the Old Testament was, of course, of course, was Abel, and the last martyr was Zechariah, Second Chronicles twenty four, verse twenty and twenty one. We should keep in mind that the Jewish order of the Old Testament differs from ours, and the Chronicles is placed at the end of the Hebrew Bible. Thus, the Old Testament Jesus knew 
Thus, the Old Testament Jesus knew was a collection of writings reaching from Genesis to Chronicles with all the other books in between. A collection which embraces the same books as is, as, as is in our Old Testament today. Some scholars have argued that toward the close of the first century, Jewish leaders at Jamni, located near the coast of Palestine, determined the limits of the Old Testament canon. However, all, all we can be sure of is that, is that discussion were held in Jamni about certain books, such as Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. This canon was subsequently fixed long before uh, Gemini, and discussions there did not admit certain books into the canon, but allowed those books to remain. Additional evidence of, of, on the Old Testament canon comes from Josephus, a well-known Jewish historian of the first century. In his uh, Against Appion, now I'm probably mispronouncing all these names, uh, Written about A.D. 95, he defends the Jews by arguing that they possessed an, anti a, a antiquity unmatched by the Greeks. He has this to say, It follows that we do not possess myriads of inconsistent books conflicting with, with each other. Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but twenty-one and contain the record of all time. Of these, five are the book of Moses comprising the laws and the traditional history from the birth of man down to the, death, to the death of the lawgiver. This period falls only a little short of 3,000 years from the death of Moses until uh, Artaxerxes, who succeeded uh, Axerxes as king of, uh, of uh, Persia. The prophet subsequent to Moses wrote the history of, of the events of their own times in, th in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with, with earlier records because of, their, of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Now, Josephus goes on to state how highly the Jews esteemed their, their scriptures. We have given, he goes on to say, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have, have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a, a, a syllable. And it, is, and it is an instinct with every Jew from, from the day of his birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them, and if need be, cheerfully die for them. Lightfoot says we can draw several uh, conclusions from Josephus. First, the number of books looked upon has looked upon as having divine Authority is carefully limited to twenty-two, but but uh, excuse me by joining a roof to ju to Judges and limitation to Jeremiah, and remembering that the Jews enumerated their books differently. The twenty-two books mentioned by Josephus are the same as the thirty-nine books in our Bible today. Two, the division of the books is according to a three-part pattern. Although individual books are included in different categories, they form a threefold grouping similar to the law, the prophets, and the writings. Third, the time covered in these books is expressly limited. Josephus believed that the canon extended from Moses to Artaxerxes, uh, uh, 464 to 424 B.C. This corresponds with the Jewish belief that the prophetic inspiration ceased with Malachi, who apparently was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was a period of Artaxerxes, uh, Others indeed wrote later, but 
their writings are not, not on par with the earlier writings. In other words, according to Josephus, the canon is closed. The te- and fourth, the text of these books is sacred. No one has dared to cancel or alter it, uh, since to every Jew these writings are decrees of God. Confirmation of the, of the number of books accepted by Josephus comes from early Christian writers such as, uh, as Origen and Jerome in the 3rd century A.D. Origen, or, how you pronounce it, counts 21 books of the, Old Test, in, 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 of the Old Testament. Giving both their Hebrew and Greek titles, he lists them as follows. 1 through 5, the five books of Moses. 6, Joshua. 7, Judges and Ruth, he puts together. 8, 1 and 2 Samuel, he puts together. 9, 1 and 2 Kings, he puts together. 10, Chronicles, again, 1 and 2 together. 11, Ezra through Nehemiah. 12, Psalms, 13, Proverbs, 14, Ecclesiastes, 15, Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, 16, Isaiah, 17, Jeremiah and Lamentations, 18, Daniel, 19, Ezekiel, 20, Job, and 21, Esther. Origen omits from his, from his list of book, from his list, the book of the, of the 12 minor prophets, because this is clearly an accidental omission, since it is necessary to make up his own number of 22. Uh, 22. At the end of the 4th century, Jerome uh, staunchly maintains that the number of books in the Hebrew Old Testament was, was, uh, must be no more than 22. He cannot admit other books because they are not in the Hebrew canon. Now, we're going to stop there. When we come back <clears throat> when we come back next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll have another study next week. We may be on break. Depends how it goes with the holiday, but uh, the, this season, I should say. Uh, but when we come back next time, <clears throat> we'll look at the canon of the New Testament. I do thank you for being here with me. To, <clears throat> excuse me. I do thank you for being here with me today. Uh, like I said, next time we'll look at the text of the of the New Testament, and then we'll look at uh, uh, what we call uh, well, we'll look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, so to speak. Uh, sometimes referred to as the manuscripts from the sand, things such as that. And so we'll look at some of those next week and see how far we get based upon our time. I do thank you for being here with me. I hope you have enjoyed this study. I do hope you have a good Lord's Day and good time with your family uh, during this time of the year. I hope to see you again next time.